This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 420,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel at any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast to claim your offer. That's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast, no dashes, no spaces. This episode, I'm recommending Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics by Stephen Greenblatt. You might not be surprised to learn that I'm an enormous fan of William Shakespeare. I spent 20 years as an English teacher, after all. But even if the bard isn't your cup of tea, Greenblatt makes his tour of tyrannical rulers from Shakespeare's plays extremely, even pointedly, relevant for our present day and circumstances. Shakespeare was a keen observer of how, even 500 years ago, charismatic and toxic leaders somehow came to power in otherwise enlightened societies, and his plays, as analyzed by Greenblatt, practically offer study guides in the rise, reign, and fall of populist dictators. It's a surprisingly engaging read. To check it out, go to audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. No dashes, no spaces. One last time, that's audibletrial.com slash edinfinitumpodcast. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 2, Episode 11, Principles of Power, Franny, Annie, and Nanny. The word principle has a number of meanings in the English language, one of which is first or most important, as in the principal mission of a school is to educate students. Spelled differently, ending P-L-E instead of P-A-L, the word principle means a value that you live your life by, as in, we believe in the principles of democracy. When the word, back to being spelled P-A-L, is used to refer to the person in charge of a school, I think it combines both of those meanings. The idea of calling the head of a school the principal, after all, has its roots in the phrase principal teacher, or first among teachers, as it were. But I would also argue that the principles, P-L-E-S, that a school principal, P-A-L, holds, are incredibly important for shaping and maintaining the mission and culture of that school. There's widespread agreement in the last 20 years of ed research that, next to actual classroom instruction, the principal's leadership is the most important school-related factor in student learning and achievement. The average American knows plenty of famous and celebrated teachers in history. Annie Sullivan, Maria Montessori, Jaime Escalante or from fiction, Mr. Chips, Mr. Holland, Mr. Cotter. But when it comes to principles, can you name three or even one famous historical principal? Or even a fictional principal who isn't just set up to be a buffoon like Principal Seymour Skinner or Richard Belding? I mean, each of those two have their soft spots and moments of grace, but I wouldn't want either of them running my school. So it's high time we celebrated some groundbreaking and influential principals, three of them right here in today's episode. All three are African-American women who were either from or spent most of their time in Washington, D.C., Fanny Copland, Annie Cooper, and Nanny Burroughs. While it's kind of delightful how their names all rhyme in a cutesy way, there is nothing cutesy or diminutive about any of these three incredible school leaders. We'll take a look at their lives and achievements in more or less chronological order. First, Fanny Copland. Fanny Jackson was born a slave in Washington, D.C. on October 15, 1837. At the age of 12, she was freed when her aunt was able to buy out her contract. As a teenager, Fanny got a job working for Henry Calvert, author and future mayor of Newport, Rhode Island, 
the town where she lived out her teenage years, supporting herself financially. From an early age, Fanny decided that she wanted to be an educator. She later wrote that, quote, I had it in me to get an education and teach my people. This idea was deep in my soul, end quote. One of the possible reasons that idea was so deep in Fanny's soul may well have been her attendance as a student at the Rhode Island State Normal School, which had just been established by future U.S. Commissioner of Education Henry Barnard. Yes, that Barnard. As you may recall from our episode earlier this season about Francis W. Parker, a normal school is what we used to call teacher training colleges. Normal schools generally had two parts, the teacher education program and an actual school for actual children, in which those teachers would teach, learning about teaching on the job with daily practical applications for what they learned. The Rhode Island State Normal School has long since become Rhode Island College, but Fanny didn't stay on for that. She applied to Oberlin College in Ohio, the first college in the U.S. to accept black female students, and enrolled in a course of study normally reserved for young men. Fanny became the first African-American student to be appointed to the college's preparatory department. This meant that Fanny had become the first black person chosen to be a pupil teacher at the college, and following the end of the Civil War in her senior year, she persuaded Oberlin to let her establish a night school on campus that would educate freed slaves. This is all as an undergraduate. I have to say my own stint as editor of my campus humor magazine kind of pales in comparison. After she graduated from Oberlin, Fanny took a job in 1865 as a high school teacher at the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia, established by Quakers in the wake of race riots. Today, the ICY has moved to Delaware County and changed its name to Cheney University, but it remains the oldest still-operating historically black school of higher education in the United States. Despite its white founders and administrators, the faculty at the Institute for Colored Youth consisted entirely of African-American men and women. Fanny taught Greek, Latin, and math, and within four years had advanced to the position of principal, the first African-American woman to ever hold such a position. As principal, Fanny was a dynamo. She added an industrial department to supplement the school's academic curriculum, and in particular a women's industrial exchange to display the mechanical and artistic works of female students. She did active outreach to local employers to hire graduates from her school to positions that made use of their education, founded a home for girls and young women to house workers from out of town, and even exchanged in a regular correspondence with Frederick Douglass. Oh, and Fanny was also a columnist for a couple of different Philadelphia newsletters. Oh, and she did missionary work in South Africa, too, after her eventual marriage to Methodist Episcopal minister Reverend Levy Jenkins Coppin, and she established a school there. She eventually returned to the United States, wrote an autobiography, and died in 1913. After her death, a teacher training school for African Americans in Baltimore, Maryland, was renamed the Fanny Jackson Coppin Normal School in her memory. It still exists now as Coppin State University. Fanny's legacy extends far beyond this, however. By breaking the boundaries of both gender and color, she paved the way for future African American women to take leadership roles in public education, including her fellow Oberlin alum, Anna Cooper. Which brings us to Annie. Anna Cooper is often considered the mother of African-American feminism, but she also made history as an educator, and that's the context in which we're going to look at her in this episode. Anna Julia Haywood Cooper, like Fanny Coppin, was born a slave, albeit 21 years later, on August 10, 1858. She was the daughter of Hannah Stanley Haywood, a slave in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the white master who legally owned her, ironically named George Washington Haywood or possibly his brother, Hannah herself, whether because of choice or compulsion, apparently refused to name her daughter's father. The Civil War concluded by the time young Anna was seven, so she was able to spend the vast majority of her life as a free person. 
Living in Raleigh gave her the opportunity to attend a sort of lab school that was part of the newly created St. Augustine's Normal School and Collegiate Institute. St. Augustine's was founded by Episcopal ministers with the express purpose of training teachers to teach newly freed slaves. This was a special population, as not only had they been systematically denied formal schooling, but for a long time even attempting to educate slaves carried heavy fines and even jail sentences in North Carolina, as well as, in no particular order, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia. Now, we're talking the 1860s here, so taxpayer-funded universal free public education wouldn't be a thing for some time yet, but Anna was lucky in that a minister agreed to fund her tuition. He must have been able to tell that Anna was capable of great things, possibly because at age nine she was already taking a stand against the administration, demanding to be admitted into the more academically rigorous classes that were normally reserved only for boys. Anna's performance in those classes was so impressive that the faculty actually assigned her part-time teaching duties at age 10. While this wasn't entirely uncommon in the era of one-room schoolhouses, where older students were often enlisted as instructional aides of one sort or another, Anna's employment teaching mathematics was a paid position, and those monies in turn helped sustain her tuition beyond that initial grant from the minister. Upon graduation, she was hired on as a full-time instructor. Even though she was not allowed the title of faculty, Anna taught courses in classics, English, modern history, and music. At age 19, she married a former classmate named George Cooper, but he died only two years later, and the young widow Anna never remarried. Instead, she went on to pursue higher education, enrolling in Oberlin College in Ohio, about 16 years after Fanny Copland. Again, in a study traditionally reserved for men, and actually arrived with so much in the way of academic credentials that Oberlin admitted her as a sophomore. See, kids, it pays to take those AP exams. After graduating from Oberlin, Anna then went on to earn a master's in mathematics. Many years later, at age 65, after studying at the Sorbonne in France, she would eventually become only the fourth black woman in American history to earn a PhD. But before then, Anna toured Europe, wrote a famous book, started and chaired several political action groups, and spoke publicly on issues of racial justice and feminism. I highly encourage you to check those out. There are some amazing writings she produced, but it's Cooper's contributions to the world of education that we're going to focus on here, particularly when she moved to Washington, D.C. and became first a Latin teacher, and then the principal at the Enma Street School. This is a pretty famous place. Founded in 1870 as the preparatory high school for Negro youth, the M Street School was one of the first high schools to admit African Americans in the United States, and it underwent a number of name changes. In 1901, when it was called the M Street High School, it was pretty much the place African American youth could go to earn a rigorous college preparatory education. The faculty were top-notch scholars, in part because highly educated African American academics were barred from getting teaching jobs almost anywhere else. What resulted was an academic powerhouse of a school that routinely sent its graduates to Harvard, Yale, Brown, and other Ivy League colleges. To be the principal of this school required, shall we say, a rather extraordinary figure. Its early principals included Francis Cardozo, the first African-American to hold statewide office in the United States. He was Secretary of State for South Carolina, if you're curious. And Robert Terrell, the second African-American to serve as a Justice of the Peace in Washington, D.C. This was the tradition into which Anna Cooper had stepped. And if anything, she stepped it up. In fact, Anna insisted on so high an academic standard that it got her in trouble, although not as you might expect from the white community. Rather, she ran afoul of a big debate at the time in the African-American community as to what the best course of education was for African-Americans at the dawn of the 20th century. Cooper was a devotee of W.E.B. Du Bois, believing that a classical education 
designed to prepare Black students for university admission and positions of leadership in the career and political world, should be the mission of the school. In running the M Street School according to that philosophy, Cooper and her faculty turned out a number of graduates who went on to be famous scholars, politicians, playwrights, musicians, the U.S. military's first Black general, Benjamin O. Davis, the artist Elizabeth Catlett, Dr. Charles Drew, the medical pioneer who established one of the first, if not the first, large-scale blood bank. However, with all these successes, Anna also made an enemy of no less a personage than Booker T. Washington. It was Washington's belief that, in an era when only a tiny and rather wealthy fraction of even the white American population attended higher education, a vocational education was much better preparation for economic success for African Americans. In other words, being able to cite Virgil and Cicero was going to be much less useful in advancing the race, Washington felt, than learning a trade that you could make some money off. If whites had their elite prep schools, Cooper argued back, then why couldn't African Americans have what Du Bois called their talented one-tenth as well? In the midst of this controversy, Cooper became accused in the local press of having had a sexual affair with her young adult foster son, one of her recently deceased brother's five children that she was taking care of. Despite many who came forward to defend her moral character, Cooper was driven out of the principal position in 1905, but not for long as it turned out. She would return to the school, by now renamed Dunbar High School, as a member of its teaching faculty five years later, and there she would remain for the next 20 years of her working life. As both principal and teacher, Cooper pioneered such practices as giving students with special needs extra time on tests, decades before this became federal law, and recognizing the effect that students' home life could have on their academic achievement, which, bizarrely, some policymakers are still in this present day all but refusing to accept. Cooper refused to administer IQ tests because, as was known from the earliest years of the practice of IQ testing, they were not very predictive of later achievement. Even after retirement, Anna maintained her activism, all the way up until her death at the ripe age of 105. I want to emphasize what a cursory treatment I've given Cooper here. She is a seminal figure in feminism and sociology in general. She's often credited with recognizing and acknowledging the concept that we now call intersectionality, the idea that one's level of privilege may rise and fall depending on which identity, gender, race, economic, is the one at issue. As Cooper wrote once of a trip riding the railroads in the South, quote, and when our train stops at a dilapidated station, and when looking a little more closely, I see two dingy little rooms with for ladies swinging over one and for colored people over the other, I'm wondering under which head I come, end quote. As someone who considers himself on his good days a social justice activist, I'm drawn to Cooper's belief that actions taken on a seemingly small scale can have ripple effects that change larger policy and culture. In all her activist rallies, speeches, salons, and travels, Cooper kept coming back to the idea of a school as one of the most important institutions for fostering positive social change. I want to use this moment, then, to pivot to the story of an M Street School graduate who studied under Anna Cooper and went on to make an impact of her own in the larger world of education, Nanny Burroughs. Nanny Helen Burroughs was born in Orange, Virginia on May 2, 1879, to parents John and Jenny Burroughs. We're now talking a late enough generation that she wasn't born a slave, although both her parents were. When attending the M Street High School as a student, Nanny organized a literary society named after Harriet Beecher Stowe and graduated with honors, determined to become a teacher just like her hero, Anna Cooper. However, unlike her hero, Nanny found herself unable to get a teaching job after graduation. Some sources say that the school employers thought her skin color was too dark. They wanted lighter-skinned black teachers. Others say that she faced prejudice because of her low economic status. 
So what did Danny and the fine tradition of American entrepreneurs decide to do after finding herself unable to get a job teaching high school? Start her own gosh darn school, of course, a school specifically geared towards educating poor and working class African American women. To get to that point, Nanny worked her way up from a job as a janitor to several secretarial jobs, including one at the National Baptist Convention, one of the oldest African American ministerial alliances in the country. It was there that Nanny eventually pitched her idea about starting a school to the convention, and pretty successfully too, because the organization agreed to purchase six acres on Nanny's behalf. However, they didn't fund the actual construction of a school building. And furthermore, in a bold ideological statement that predates Bernie Sanders by a century, Nanny refused to accept any money from super-wealthy white donors. She raised the necessary capital only from small donations from blacks in the community, mostly women, despite none other than Booker T. Washington telling her that she could never pull it off. Yeah, Booker T. kind of comes off like a real jerk in this episode. I'll do apologies to his admirers. In 1909, the National Training School for Girls opened its doors, with Nanny, only 26 years old, as its principal. Under Nanny's leadership, the school defied criticism that women should only learn skills in domestic work, and instead engaged her students in a robust academic and vocational education. I particularly appreciate the motto Nanny chose for her school. We specialize in the wholly impossible. I mentioned that the National Training School taught academic and vocational subjects, but not as separate tracks. Nanny held a belief, still considered somewhat revolutionary today, that industrial and classical education were in fact compatible. She was also an early proponent of teaching African American history as a distinct subject for study. Nanny was a real hands-on leader, always visiting classrooms, reportedly correcting students' grammar errors when she saw them. The school expanded under her leadership, and when its flagship new building, Trade Hall, was constructed in 1928, no less a figure than Mary McLeod Bethune, possibly the most famous African-American woman activist of the early 20th century, spoke at the dedication. There was just one teacher stereotype that Nanny did wind up fulfilling. She never married or had children, devoting her entire life to the school she created and ran, right up until she died in 1961. Three years later, the school was renamed after her in her honor, the Nanny Burroughs School. Part of that school still operates today as the Monroe School, which to this day continues to serve and educate junior and senior high school students in Washington, D.C. There's so much more I could say about all three of these amazing school leaders, who defied sex prejudice, race prejudice, and economic prejudice, as well as educational tradition, to create innovative and effective learning environments and experiences for their students. If you agree that teachers change the world, how much more influential are principals who change the way that teachers teach, and the way that society thinks a school can and should function? They may not appear in your history books, even if you pursue a higher degree in ed studies, but that's a shameful indictment of our teaching of history, and not of these three principles' incredible impact on American public education. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, and the grand tradition of underfunded public schools will be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. 
Still with us? Great, then you get a treat. Today's education fun fact. The oldest working teacher in the United States, at least as of 2016, was quite possibly Agnes Zelenik, who was still teaching home economics in Plainfield, New Jersey, at 102 years old. At the time of her interview, she was capping off a 22-year teaching career at her school. Yes, she picked up the job at 81, proof that you're never too old to learn new things and start new adventures. Bye now.